an exciting um, opportunity for me to be able to teach this morning, and I'm grateful. Um, this uh, past week, we started with the biblical theology of Babylon. Uh, some of you may have gotten kind of a, a syllabus, if you will, of what the seven weeks um, uh, were to look like. However, we're doing a little bit of a change in the program today and switching sort of weeks two and three. And so while we're all excited to learn about Babylon, today we're actually going to learn about Assyria. And we're going to see God interacting with um, his people, showing us his character and using his instruments to set everything up for our continual understanding um, uh, of who our God is throughout this study. We'll be spending our time this week uh, pretty much exclusively in the book of Isaiah, as I mentioned to you last week, Isaiah is an amazing book, um, and in the book of Isaiah, we see that God deals with his people Israel, he deals with the people of Judah, and he talks about three kingdoms. He talks about the Assyrians, he talks about the Babylonians, and then he talks about the Medo-Persians. We learned that Noah's grandson, Nimrod, was a mighty hunter before the Lord, a mighty warrior, and was actively um, conquering and, and overtaking other peoples and spreading his empire. We learned that Nimrod uh, founded a couple of principal cities, um, among which were Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and also Babylon, which would later become the capital of the Babylonian Empire. So this Nimrod and his legacy of being a great warrior had a significant influence on the, on the story of Israel throughout the Old Testament. Um, Melissa kindly helped me put together a couple of handouts uh, for us, and as we begin to dig into the text, uh, I'd like to invite you to make a couple of notes on the, the prophet's handout. We have some dates here. We know that all five major prophets touch on the whole idea of Babylon, but I want to have you give you a couple more dates here to help us have context for the passages that we'll be looking at today in Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 36 and 37. So we see there that Isaiah's ministry span from 760 to 673. So somewhere near Isaiah, if you want to make a couple of notes here, we have the Assyrian Empire, the descendants of Nimrod, that had a, a mighty empire from 900 B.C. through 612. We then have the Babylonian Empire, or, or otherwise known as the Neo-Babylonian Empire, that goes from 612 to 539. And then at the... the um, after the, the fall of the Babylonian Empire, we see the Medo-Persian Empire from 539 to 536. So if you keep those dates in mind, they're going to help us orient and understand as we go through um, some texts from the book of Isaiah today. So we're going to be looking at Assyria, and uh, we'll be looking at um, Isaiah's prophetic ministry in, in uh, speaking words from the Lord to his chosen people. The book of Isaiah is unique in that it has three distinct sections. I mentioned that it has a, a first portion, which really is chapters uh, 1 through 35, that deal with warnings for God's people, warnings for Judah, um, that, that there is judgment coming, that there is punishment um, for their idolatry, for their unfaithfulness to the Lord. In fact, Isaiah chapter 1 begins with uh, weighty accusations God brings charges against his people and states that there will be consequences that they will face. Jim, if you can advance to the next slide for me. So then we have um, the second portion of Isaiah, which is where we're going to be spending most of this week and next week, and that is Isaiah chapter 36 through 39. It's a very unique historical bridge 
And then the third portion of Isaiah, which goes from 40 through 66, is a portion of Isaiah that really starts to talk about God vindicating his people, God redeeming his people, and we see so much of Messiah in that third portion of Isaiah. Although, of course, we see um, Isaiah pointing to Christ throughout the book. But chapters 36 through 39 are very unique. Um, Liberal theologians have attacked this middle portion of Isaiah because it doesn't fit the literary style. It reads like parallel texts from Chronicles and from Kings that talk about history versus prophetic word. But all of that is in there, um, and we recognize that Isaiah is one unified work and and respect the um, traditional view that Isaiah is the author of all of Isaiah. And the unique thing about the, the way we see this historical text is that Isaiah includes these details to show the, the faithfulness of God to his word, to show that God foretold things, and in his timing, those things came to pass. A lot of predictive prophecies that we'll be taking a look at in the, in the coming weeks as God spoke, as God brought to pass, and God's people learned to see that, that uh, faithfulness of God to his word. Praise God for that. So as we begin today's study, we're going to be talking about these Assyrians. And these Assyrians are, are a mighty descendant of Nimrod. They're a warring people. They have all of Mesopotamia and moving on and over all the way into Egypt in, in a state of flux. There's wars. There's conquest. There's uh, treaties and alliances being made. And what we see in all of that is that God's hand is behind it all. God's hand is authorizing it all. And all of it has major implications for God's people. We're going to look at a couple of um, texts, first of all, to bear in mind, where God promises that he will punish, he promises that he will protect, and he promises that he will preserve a remnant. A couple of verses just to kind of set the stage here. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 24 through 26. God promises um, to the people of Judah. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with a rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. So we see that God is uh, telling in advance that the people of Zion, specifically of Jerusalem, need not fear this Assyrian advance that's coming their way. Also, Jeremiah, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 14, 24 through 27, God also gives an oracle in which he, he's giving a, a word against Assyria. He says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so it shall be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountain trample him underfoot. And his yoke shall dis- depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purpose concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For what the Lord of hosts has purposed, who can annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? From there, we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 8. And get a little bit more of a context of what's going on with this Assyrian empire. What's what's happening? And chapter 7 and chapter 8 really in many ways go together. And... Isaiah is rich in the use of temporal markers. He gives us uh, certain events, certain details that help us orient ourselves timeline-wise. So we see on our sheet of paper that Isaiah's ministry is from 760 to, seven, to 673. 
And we're going to see in this chapter 8 that we've got a really good indication of when this is um, when this word of the Lord is being spoken to his servant Isaiah. I'm going to read from chapter 8 through verse 10. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it common characters belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz, and I will get re- reliable witness, witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechariah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king. The Lord spoke to me again, Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently, and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. And it will rise over its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. This text is absolutely fascinating. There's a lot of things in here that we kind of need to understand to see what's happening. First of all, God goes to Isaiah, who, as far as we know, has not yet conceived a child, and says, you're going to have a child, and this is going to be your child's name. And the name is an interesting one. Uh, even with as many children as we have uh, born in the Pacific Hope Church family, we haven't heard this one yet. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And it actually means um, swift to the booty, quick to the plunder. And it's actually making reference to the king of Assyria and how he would plunder and loot and take over all of these, these communities. And what's happening here is that God is wanting to show his power to give predict- predictive prophecy. He's going to say, look, this is going to happen. He says, go, write it down. Here's the, what you're going to name your, your child. So Isaiah does that. And then the Lord says to him, he says, Before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. That's a really interesting temporal marker. If we look at this, what he's saying is, before the child can speak, which, by the way, the Bible was so precise that uh, God told him it was going to be a boy. (laughs) You're going to have a boy. Here's what you're going to name him. And he says, before that child is old enough to say, Mama or Dada, this is what's going to happen. So for those of us who have kids and grandkids, we know that the age might be two to three years before a child can speak with, with that clarity on the, on the slow end. You might have a really uh, quick child, and it might take closer to a year, right? It, it could range, but we've got a, a rough idea of how long it's going to be before this child can, can say these words. And God says to Isaiah, before that happens, um, this king of Assyria is going to be a force to be reckoned with in your backyard, the other thing that's really interesting about this is that um, as God warns, he says that the king of Assyria is going to overtake these cities, and he addresses them by knowing, by, by talking about their uh, national capitals. He says, the, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. In chapter 7, uh, we see that God specifically lists out the, the nations by their capitals. So in our notes, it might be worth mentioning that Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, the Babylon, of course, would later become the Babylonian cap, um, capital. 
that Samaria is the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom, and that Jerusalem, or Zion, is the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom. So keeping all those in mind when we read Isaiah, when it refers to um, the, the capital city, it often refers to the nation collectively. But this text, actually, God is speaking to the southern kingdom, and he's saying, look, before Isaiah's child is able to say, mother or father, the king of Assyria is going to overtake Syria, and he's going to overtake the northern kingdom, and the people of Judah may have thought that that was good news. At the time, Samaria and, and Israel were, were um, or sorry, Syria and Israel were key opponents of Judah. So they made some deals with the Assyrians and said, hey, why don't you protect us? We'll pay you a tribute. You come, you um, uh, stave off our enemies. And so uh, in verse 5 there, we see, we see that they, as the, the southern kingdom, rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia being defeated. They're like, hey, the Assyrians are fighting our battle for us. This is great. God says, watch out. They're not on your side. He says, you have not wanted Shiloh, which is the place where God resides. You have not put your trust in me. You've instead put your trust in the king of Assyria. And he says, the Lord is bringing up against you the waters of the river which is a, uh, a metaphor referring to the, the Euphrates, where um, the Assyrians were coming from. They're mighty and many, the king of Assyria and its glory. And it will rise over its channels and go over its banks, meaning the, the surge of military strength coming into the region. It's going to do much more than what Judah was hoping it would accomplish and much more than they were expecting the Assyrians to take. And it says it'll flow over its banks and sweep on into Judah it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So picture this mighty river coming. It overflows its banks, and it takes out these fortified cities throughout uh, the land of Judah. But it will not reach the head. It says reaching even to the neck. And this is God confirming that while the Assyrians would overtake Judah, that Jerusalem for a time would be protected. Chapter 7 gives us some clues that says that the head of a certain nation is its capital, and in each capital, the head is named as the king. So we know that in this passage, reaching even to the neck, talks about um, Jerusalem being untouched or, or the king of um, Judah being untouched for this time, but yet it would be a message of both hope and of fear for the people of Judah. So keep this in mind. And, and as I mentioned, we're looking for temporal markers here, right? So what we know from history is that um, Samaria would have fallen in 732 BC. So you can write that in there. 732 is when um, Samaria fell. If we go back to uh, before Isaiah's child was born and could say mother or father, you can add another three years to that roughly. And it's about 735 BC. So keep that in mind. Now we're going to fast forward together. And we are going to go with all of this passage from chapter 8 in mind to Isaiah chapter 36. We're in this historical bridge that, again, doesn't fit some of the literary style of how Isaiah presents God's word throughout the rest of the text. But here we find God beginning to show how these predictive prophecies are coming to pass. Isaiah 36, verse 1. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. 
And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to him, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? I'm going to stop there just for a moment because Isaiah gives us a temporal marker. I think um, from last week there might have been a handout that some of you received with the dates of the different kings, right? Can somebody um, refresh me? on? uh, Does anyone have the sheet from last week with the kings? Okay, what do we have there for the dates of Hezekiah's reign? King Hezekiah. What we have is a, a precise marker that God gives us in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. So if I'm right here, we've got ourselves in 702 BC, okay? So we have um, Hezekiah's reign that was uh, around 716 to 687. So in, now we're, we're, we're in 702. We started in chapter 8. We're in 735. Now we're in 702. So we've got those years that have elapsed, that have, that have passed. And now we have this force of Assyria coming around Jerusalem. They've swept over. They've overswept their banks. They've taken these cities in Judah. And now they're, in a sense, double-crossing Hezekiah. They're now all around him. And one of the generals of King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, is coming with um, some threats to Jerusalem and to the king of Judah, who at this time is Hezekiah. So, continuing, now that we know we're in 702 B.C., we have uh, this Rabshakeh, which is an Assyrian general, like a military leader. And the the military leader says to them, Say to Hezekiah, verse 4, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Again, there is a lot of alliances happening. Judah was making friends with anybody they could to stave off their enemies. At this point in time, they had uh, maybe some hope that the Egyptians would send forces. And uh, Sennacherib says, they're not really much of a threat to me. So who are you trusting in? Verse 7, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. What an interesting dialogue and the detail in which God's word captures this account for us. The general of the Assyrian army says, you can't trust in your alliances. We've got you surrounded. There are no chariots coming from Egypt. And then he says, and you have no military strength. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you guys can come up with the soldiers. (laughs) What a threat, right? And so, um, the, the, the most frightening word here would have to be how he says, but don't you think it's my God? Don't you think it's your God that sent me here to deal with you? 
Don't you think I have divine authorization to come and march against you? And certainly, those were, those were true words. We find throughout this text in, in Isaiah that God appointed the king of Assyria to go and carry out his judgment, to carry out his, his discipline against idolatrous people, including the people of Judah. So we've got this general outside of Jerusalem making these threats. And the dialogue continues in verse 11. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak, to these, speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not, this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me. Come out to me. Then each of you will eat his own vine, and each of you his own fig tree, and each of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Were the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, Do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him of the words of Rabshakeh. What an amazing account. So you've got these representatives of Hezekiah saying, uh, could we speak in Igpe Atenle so the rest of the guys don't understand what we're saying? You know, how, how many of the parents have done this, right? Like, can we talk to our kids in a way that everyone can't understand? But the, the representatives of Hezekiah had the, uh, of, um, Hezekiah had specific instructions to not respond, right? And, and the people of, of uh, the instruments of the Rabshakeh of the king of Assyria had specific instructions to put terror and fear in the hearts of everyone living in the city of Jerusalem that they had presently surrounded. Our message is not just for Hezekiah. Our message, our message is for all of you. And I won't repeat the message there. That was kind of ugly. <laughs> You'll eat your... Well, never mind. We'll leave that one alone. So... This message is for all the people that are, are holed up in the city, and naturally they would be afraid. Part of their reason for fear was a lack of understanding of what Isaiah had promised in chapter 8, right? What did, I, what did Isaiah, what did God promise through Isaiah in chapter 8? Judah is going to be swept away. Assyria is going to overtake its banks, but only up to the neck. Jerusalem won't be touched by the king of Assyria, Right? It's kind of a spoiler alert, right? If they had known what God's word said, they would know that God was going to offer his protection at this time and stave off the hand of the king of Assyria. But they didn't know that. So we begin chapter 37 with Hezekiah's response to this menacing threat. And also, I just want to make one other application here. Do you notice how the enemy, how the adversary says, don't trust in what Hezekiah is saying. 
we want to make peace with you. We want to make a deal. This doesn't have to be so difficult. We can live together. In fact, we'd like to take you to a land that's really not that bad, right? And, and that's really, in many, many ways, how the enemy of the remnant comes to us with those, with those lies, right? Making peace with the enemy isn't that bad, right? Hezekiah responds in chapter 37, verse 1. As soon as Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. There's a right response to a threat. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. What an amazingly godly response. The scripture tells us that, that there was none like Hezekiah in terms of being a God-fearing king. In our list of kings, we see there's an awful lot of rotten ones. But Hezekiah was one that found favor with the Lord. And his response to this threat is, I'm going to God's house. My response is to, to seek God's messenger. My response is to seek out Isaiah, son of Amos, to see what he's going to say about the situation. And that's a right response for the remnant. When we're completely encircled by enemy, when we're completely encircled by threat, seek God's word. Seek God's messenger. There is where our salvation comes from, and only from there. Verse 5, when the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, which the young men of the king of Assyria have, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Kind of picture Isaiah being rather calm and collected as he responds. Oh, yeah, you guys are coming from Hezekiah. Don't tell him not to worry about it. The king's going to turn around and go back by the way he came. He's going to hear of some other military problems elsewhere, and he's going to leave his position around Judah, and everything's going to work out just fine. What an amazing response. Of course, Isaiah, back in chapter 8, was given God's promise, and he staked his very life on that promise. And so he speaks that truth to Hezekiah in his moment of trial. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, verse 8. For he heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king had heard concerning uh, Terhaka, the king of Cush, which is Ethiopia. He said, he had set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? And the nations that my fathers destroyed goes on in Haran and Rezeph and the people of Eden who were also in Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvim, the king of Hena, or the king of Eva? So despite this military change in strategy, the threat goes out. And in verse 14, we see Hezekiah's response to this threat. Hezekiah received 
the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread the letter out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you this is amazing. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hand, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. What an amazing, amazing prayer. What an amazing example of how to pray. To me, this is really convicting. How often do we pray for our own well-being, for the outcome to be favorable or painless for us? But look at Hezekiah's desire. His desire is that God would answer prayer in a way that would make it clear that he alone is God, that he alone would be glorified. What if, in all of our prayer lives, our prayer was that God would be glorified above all else? What if our prayer was that the kingdoms of the earth would know that he alone is God? That is an amazing prayer. I actually have homework for you uh, for next week if you want to jot a note. Um, If you could read this week Acts 4, 23 through 30. And then when you do that, read again this passage, Isaiah 37, 14 through 20. You're going to see a lot of commonalities in the, in the verbiage, in the, the um, descriptive words that the believers use in the book of Acts that are borrowed from this prayer of Hezekiah. This is an exemplary prayer. This is a prayer that in the lives of believers is worth committing to memory. That truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hand, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. God is honored and glorified by that attitude in Hezekiah's heart. And so God responds. We see instances where... um, People would pray in Scripture, and God would remain silent. In fact, even in the book of Isaiah, God says, you can pray to me if you want. I got my ears covered. God tells Jeremiah, don't even bother to pray for these people. <laughs> you know. But in this case, we see that through Isaiah, God is going to respond back to Hezekiah. Verse 21, Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, said, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She's Jerusalem. She wags her head behind you. It's a good analogy. She wags her head. The daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypress, to come to its remote heights, its, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up the sole of my foot, all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? 
I planned from days of old what I should now bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength and dismayed and confounded, had become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. I know you're sitting down, you're going out, and you're coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me, and put your complacency, and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. This is a message for the king of Assyria, for Sennacherib, that Isaiah is giving to Hezekiah. And it's, it's amazing because he says, look, this is a, my plan from the beginning. I let you march over these cities. I let you take these fortified cities. But when you're coming to Jerusalem, you're dealing with me. And he says, I'm going to put a hook in, my, in your nose, and I'm going to take you back by the way you came. The Assyrians were known for their cruelty, for their military strength. They would take long lines of people with hooks through their noses and march them into captivity. And God says, that's not going to happen here. I'm putting a hook in your nose, and I'm taking you back the way you came. You're not messing with Jerusalem. And this is, this is amazing as it's God's faithfulness. And it goes back to um, chapter 8, which is... Um, God fulfilling this promise, uh, these promises. God predestined that all of this should happen. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I shall now bring to pass. Really quick side note, the Assyrians and the Babylonians were great at keeping history. They have written history that we can find in museums today. There is a prism made out of clay called Sennacherib's prism, prism that, that in cuneiform accounts for all of his military conquests. And it talks about and names 46 fortified cities that um, Sennacherib overcame. And when it gets to the account of Jerusalem, it says that he had Hezekiah hold up like a caged bird. But it never mentions Jerusalem falling to Sennacherib. And of course, we know, and we talked about this at the Thursday night study, the Bible tells history as it happened. The world tells history as they'd like to see it happening. Right? So in Sennacherib's account, we don't see that he ever took Jerusalem. It says he had Hezekiah surrounded like a cage bird, but he didn't take it. So all of this advance, these 46 fortified cities, Sennacherib's advance stopped there. Keep that in mind as we move in to talk about Babylon in the weeks ahead. We're almost out of time, but I want to um, conclude with um, God stating with clarity that Jerusalem is not going to fall into Assyria's hands at this time. Verse 30, and this shall be a sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake, and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Syrians. And the people rose early in the morning. Behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned, Home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, Adramelech and Sharazer, his sons, struck him down with a sword, and they escaped into the land of Aradoc. Eshadon, his son, reigned in his place. 
God gives us this remarkable text telling us how faithful he is. He struck down 185,000 Assyrians. Hezekiah couldn't come up with 2,000 soldiers to put on horses. So who fought the battle for him? God did. And as we look throughout this study, we want to see and understand our God, his remnant, and the instruments that he has. And look at what he does in this verse. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. All of this is part of God's plan to protect his remnant and to preserve them for his purposes. One last application, if we can go back to Isaiah chapter 8. This is a clear message to help us understand God's character and God's message for his remnant and also his message for his chosen instruments. Isaiah 8, verses 11 through 13. For the Lord thus spoke to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Don't, fe- don't fear when Sennacherib and his armies are, are surrounding the city of Jerusalem. What you should fear is a holy God that demands our undivided affection, our undivided love. And for, the, for us today to make that application, there will come adversity. We're, we're promised that these instruments of, of the Lord, which are the kingdoms of today, the powers of today, the, the political challenges that we fear, all of that may come and surround us, but who should we fear? We should only fear our Holy One. But dread the Lord of hosts. Him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread.